At times over the course of Christian history, there's been a pernicious teaching that has shown itself in various Christian circles, and over the years, over the centuries really, has come in and out of popularity. Uh, it is known as perfectionism, okay, perfectionism, and this is not the tendency to, you know, uh, clean your kitchen very carefully. This is a spiritual teaching, and it basically says that it is possible for a Christian to come to such a place in their walk with God where they have eliminated sin from their life, where they, in the moral and spiritual categories of life, they no longer sin. And I'm wondering if we have anyone that has arrived there yet uh, that is here amongst us. Would you raise your hand? We'd like to identify you. Allow you to come and preach this sermon, please. And... If you raise your hand, we would want to interview your family and make sure that, indeed, you are a perfect individual. Many of you know my pastoral hero is Charles Spurgeon, uh, who pastored in London 125 years ago. And uh, there was, there's a story in his uh, ministry where there was a preacher in London that was teaching perfectionism and was teaching that he himself had arrived at that place where he was spiritually and morally perfect. Well, Spurgeon uh, ran into this guy around town, uh, like at a breakfast restaurant, saw him, went over, and poured a jug of milk over his head. True story. He was asked later, why did you do that? He said, I wanted to test his perfection. And apparently the man's response left little doubt. Uh, regarding his perfection, as you might well imagine. This is but one example of a tension between who we are in Christ and how we live our lives, between justification, being declared righteous, and the living out of that justification in the practicalities of life. How does our position in Christ shape Uh, our position and practice following Christ. And we've already seen how Paul in Romans 6 denies that salvation by grace means that uh, we have permission to sin, that we have license to sin. You know, people made that accusation against him. You're just saying that we can go out and live any way we want to, aren't you? And how many people would love if that was the case? He says, no, salvation by grace is not permission to sin. It is the freedom not to sin. Sin is no longer the the tyrant of our hearts. Sin is no longer the the master of our life. There now, by faith in Jesus, there is a new Lord, a new king enthroned in our hearts. His name is Jesus. We have a new reality in our life. We've been born again. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. All of these things are true. Now, we saw last week that sin is not merely doing something wrong. As we talk about sin, sin is both failing to, uh, you know, missing the mark morally, but the Bible describes sin as a force, sin as a living, active enemy within us, that there is this law, there is this enemy that remains within us, even as Christians. The Bible calls it 
sin or the flesh or the old man, all of these are New Testament terms describing the remnant of the old me, the remnant of my old fleshly self that even as a Christian dwells within me. And it is this enemy that uses the law, we saw last week, weaponizes the law, takes the law, and uses it to create desires to do the opposite of the law. Again, the illustration, keep off the grass. When you see the sign, what do you want to do more than anything? Walk on the grass. Why is that? Because we have indwelling sin within us that uses, big and small, laws and rules to make us want to do what the law tells us not to do. And so Paul here now is expanding on that principle in verses 13 through 20. This is our text today. And I'm going to tell you, as I read this, it's going to sound confusing. It's going to sound like Paul is tormented inside. And indeed he was. So listen carefully. I'll try to read it in a way that helps to understand what he's saying. Did that, the law, which is good, then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want... I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Perfectly, all the time. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Any amens to that? Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, I mentioned last week that one of the challenges, perhaps the challenge in Romans 7, and the thing that's debated has been for centuries, is who is he talking about here? (laughs) Who is the I as he is writing? And there are many options. I'm not going to get into it. I shared with you last week that it's my opinion. I go with Augustine and many other luminaries in history who say the I here is actually Paul. He's not talking about somebody else. He's talking about himself. He is describing what is going on within him. It's apostolic uh, autopsy of what is going on within him spiritually. And we see in this that even apostles did not get a free pass when it comes to sin. Even apostles struggled. In fact, I would say they struggled more than anyone because the more mature you grow in Christ, the more you see your own failures and your own sinfulness. A great measure of of how spiritually advanced you are is how good you think you are. And I would suggest that the most mature here, the humble here, are those who say, as Paul does at the end of this chapter, O wretched man that I am. So what Paul is doing here is describing a personal, autobiographical turmoil within him as he evaluates what he wants to be and how he wants to live and how he actually lives and how he actually is. Now this is similar to other passages that he talks about. A famous one I share with you today is Philippians 
This, you probably, if you're a Christian, you probably know this passage, but listen to it in light of what he's talking about here. He says this, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Okay, he knew he wasn't perfect, didn't need a jug of milk poured over his head to know he wasn't perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I press on towards the goal, towards the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Notice, let those of us who are mature think this way. So spiritual maturity is not claiming moral perfection. It does press on. It presses on. Towards what? And here's the big Here's the 30,000-foot thing that is being described here. What is Paul wanting? What is he aiming for? Where is he going? And this is described in a very important word that we're going to spend seven and eight and probably other passages in Romans on. And here's the word. It is sanctification. Okay? Sanctification. Which I'm giving you a definition today is this. Sanctification is a Christian's progressive growth into the likeness of Jesus. Okay, I'd like for you all, if you would, to please say this with me, class, that we might imprint it on our head. Say it with me. What is sanctification? It is a Christian's progressive growth into the spiritual likeness of Jesus. Now, this is so important because if you want to know what God is doing in your life, in the big things, in the small things, this is what he is doing. If you're a Christian here, God's will is that you will be sanctified. So we better know what God's doing in our life. Or we're going to be confused with all of the, you know, troubles and trials and issues in life. Why is this happening? How often do you say that? God, why is this happening? Well, in the big picture, the why is sanctification. Now, Paul uses this word often in Romans, most recently in chapter 6, verse 22, where he says this, but now that you have been set free from sin, okay, not free from the presence of sin, but free from the condemnation of sin, and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Listen, Christian, listen to me. Justification is not the only thing that God is doing in your life. Even though justification is a wonderful thing, to be declared righteous by God through faith is a wonderful thing. Luther said it's the, it's, the, it's the root, it's the heart of the gospel, and indeed we could say that. But it is not the only thing that God is doing. And I think there are many churches and backgrounds maybe you grew up in that they so emphasize the beginning of the Christian life and evangelism, which I think we could do better to, we, we could do better focusing more on that in my opinion, but there are people that are really good at that initial part. And they say, okay, now you're going to heaven, be warmed and filled. And it leaves people going, uh, what now? What, like, what am I doing now? Am I just waiting to die so that I can go to heaven? Is, it like, is that what the Christian life is? Trust in Jesus, endure a long life, go to heaven. Amen. Well, that's not all bad, is it? Okay. I'd be okay. But listen, there are so many more exciting things that God is doing in our life, and they are summarized with the word sanctification. And I feel a burden today 
to impress upon you that God is working in your life as much as he was in the declaring of you being, be, to be righteous is God's work in making you righteous for you becoming righteous in your life. This is the big deal that God is doing in the Christian. He is changing us. Notice that word, progressive change. Changing us into what? Okay, what's the butterfly here? If metamorphosis is is becoming a butterfly for the Christian, what is the butterfly? What what, what are we going to be made into? And here now, in what is one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible, guess where? Romans 8. I'm getting ahead of myself because we are going to go so slow through Romans 8, 29 and several verses around it. But here is Romans 8, 29. If you are a Christian, you need to have this verse like in your soul. Here's what it says. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Way back in eternity past, God purposed that he was going to, if you're a Christian here today, that he was going to put a frog in your throat. That he was going to initiate salvation Declare you righteous and begin a process of shaping who you are at the core of who you are into the likeness of the most wonderful person who has ever walked the planet. The most glorious life that has ever been lived. You are being made into Christ-likeness. God is saying this, I'm going to do a makeover in your life. A lot of you like fixer-uppers and all that stuff right now. Okay? You're like, oh, the before and the after is amazing. It's nothing compared to what God's doing in your life. He is doing a massive makeover and has nothing to do with, you know, Botox or <laughs> things like this. In fact, on the outside, we're getting uglier, all of us. But on the inside, on the inside, we are becoming more beautiful because he is making us into Jesus juniors. He is making us into the likeness of Christ. So therefore, I would say that we Christians are the ultimate wannabes, okay? We are wannabes. You're familiar with this term. It's often used pejoratively of somebody. Oh, they're just a wannabe. You know, like they, they aspire to be like so. So, you, so you, I mean, you look at the vast majority of teenagers, and this is as true today. I was a youth pastor for a long time. It's as true today as it was true back when you were in school, Teenagers are generally are wannabes, and that is why they are so careful about their dress and their hair and their, you know, the slang that they use. They are desperate to be just like whoever the particular it person is at the time. They're wannabes. Athletes are wannabes. They want to be the greatest of all time in whatever they're doing. And then there's debates about who is the GOAT, the greatest of all time. In your opinion, who is it? How many say LeBron? How many say Jordan? I know where I pastor, okay? (laughs) I'm appealing to my audience. You want to be like Mike. All true Christians are wannabes. We want to be like Christ. 
except when we don't want to be like Christ. And that is what Paul is agonizing over in Romans 7. All of these internal like contradictions and tensions and pulling his hair out. All of these are, the root of all of these is that Paul wants to be like Christ, but then he looks into his soul, his mind, his actions, his thoughts, and he sees so much that isn't like him. And he's tormented by how not like Jesus he is. And Romans 7, on the surface here, it sounds like he's just, you know, uh, this kind of person, it's like, you know, Gollum. Right? The the master won't do it to you. Master loves me. Master hates me. You know. I thought about showing the clip. I might next week. I don't know. But because it's such a picture of this, like, you know, this tormented individual. Well, don't forget, folks, Romans 8 is on the horizon. Okay? Romans 7 is the battle. Romans 8 is the victory. Okay? But we're not there yet. We're, We're in, you know, we're in the battle here. So with that said, let's do a little bit of exposition of the text. Actually, Romans 7. Let's just walk through it. Okay, so what does he say? He says this at the beginning. Did that which is good then bring death to me by no means? Did the law bring death to me? Did something that is good bring death to me? And you have that, again, there's that strong language. God forbid. No way. The strongest negative the Greek allows. There's Paul going, no. The problem is not the law of God. The problem is me. The law didn't bring death. What did the law bring? Verse 13. In order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Here's Paul's summary of the law and the purpose of the law. It is God didn't give the law to bring death. The wages of sin is death. Not the wages of the law. The wages of sin is death. But what God's moral law does is it shows sin to be sin. We know what sin is because the law says this is the line. You cross this line, now you're sinning. It shows what sin is. And it does so in the categories that matter to God. And those categories are not how much money you have, your power, your fame. The categories that God cares about are holiness, righteousness, and godliness. And in these categories, just the Ten Commandments are damning enough. Forget the other 600 commands found in the Old Testament. Just the Big Ten damn us completely. They show us how far we fall short. This is known as depravity. And we're not even close. Like the best one here, not even close. How far are we Uh, Short of the glory of God, he says here, short beyond measure. So I could draw the comparison. I could say, it's like us trying to jump the Grand Canyon. But technically speaking, if you attempted that, we could find where your body splatted, measure from from the splatterings to the other side, and we would know how far you fell short. So that's actually not a good analogy. Because how far we fall short of the glory of God is beyond measure. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Here he's getting personal now. The law is good, but I am not 
Okay, what is he talking about here? He's talking about this internal spiritual struggle and analysis of that struggle inside of him. The I here, and listen carefully, the I here, and this is part of what's confusing about Romans 7, the I, Paul is like separating himself as he analyzes it into the I that is the spiritual Paul, the real Paul, the, the saved Paul. And the I that is the old Paul, the sinful Paul. And so bear that in mind as we go through, it's very helpful. The enemy is the flesh within. This is indwelling sin, the remnants of the old carnal Paul. Verse 15, for I do not understand my actions. Who here can't say that? I don't understand my actions. For I do not do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. Now, does that sound familiar? It should, because whenever we do something wrong, we scramble to find some sort of self-justification. We'll say to the person that we hurt, we'll say, well, uh, something came over me. I don't know what, but I'm sorry. Or we say, uh, that, that wasn't the real me that did that. Or we always can blame the devil. In worst case scenario, when you need somebody to blame, go with Eve and blame the devil. Paul does none of this. He owns his sin. He has committed sins here of omission and commission. You see that? He fails to do the good that he, his, self, his Christian self, wants. Omission. He also fails not to do Uh, not to do what he shouldn't. These are sins of commission. He regularly does the things he hates, he says. Things he knows that God hates. Things that the spiritual Paul hates. These I keep doing. So to hear the wannabe language here, I want to be like Jesus and I hate what I see in me that isn't like him. I wonder if that resonates with you today. Do you hate... Not dislike or wish it was different or this is the way my family is. Do you hate what is in your life that isn't like Christ? Verse 16, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That is good. He's saying here, even when I sin, I still say the law is good. And I agree with the law, what it says about my actions. Verse 17, so now it is no longer I who do it. This is... This is not blaming the devil. This is the spiritual Paul, I. It's not I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Do not hear Paul blame shifting here, okay? We can't blame the devil. We can't, you know, if my daughter hears this sermon and, and uh, you know, disobeys me today, and she says, Daddy, I didn't do it. It was indwelling sin in me. It's like, get in the corner. And quit listening to my sermons. No, we are responsible. We are responsible for what we do. We don't blame somebody else. This is not a, this this is more the cause that he's identifying. Where does this come from? What is the problem? It's not the law. The problem is me. It is old me, old Steve, old sinful me that still dwells in me. And I think if all of us were honest, we would have to, Resonate with that. And if not, please stand in the back for the jug of milk poured over your head. And we'll just see about that. 
Notice that Paul also is not comparing himself here to other people. We often do that. Well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I have not arrived into Christ-likeness quite yet. I'm not a godly person, but I'm not as bad as many people I know. Okay, I'm going to compare myself to the, you know, the worst half of humanity in order to prop myself up. No, he doesn't do that. What is he, what is he comparing himself to? Class? Well, Jesus, okay. <laughs> that's true. That, that's, that's true. He's comparing himself to the law. He is using the law as the measure and saying, I break this thing all the time. And I feel within me condemnation. And dwelling sin betrays us. It happens every day. One of my favorite commentators says this, Sin is pictured as having taken up residence in Paul. This is not the honored guest nor the paying tenant, but the squatter. Not legitimately there, but very difficult to eject. Paul is personifying sin again. It is, in some sense, a separate entity, even though it is within him. But it is not external to him. This sin that lives in him, though it is not the real Paul, is what produces the acts which the real Paul hates so much. Sin is out of character for the believer, even though it is so difficult to be rid of it entirely. And that is why the title of this message is, Doing What I Hate. We do what we should hate. And part of the problem, I think, is that we don't hate sin enough. We don't hate sin enough. Sometimes after we commit it, we hate it because we hate the consequences of it. Oh, I wish I wouldn't have done that because A, B, and C have happened in my life. Oh, I hate my sin because of the consequences of my sin. But we need to hate our sin because it is sin. And in the midst of the temptation to sin and dwelling sin deceives us into loving the very thing that we, the later us, hates. Why else would we do what we hate? Like, if you're a guest here today, you're like, these people are insane. Yes! We are so insane that we do what we hate. Because in the moment, we love it. And then later, we hate it. And we wish we hadn't done it. We're messed up people, aren't we? Verse 18, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And in that last statement there, remember the, uh, the I is spiritual Paul, what, what more is called the real Paul. And so throughout these verses, you just hear it. He is bemoaning in his life. He is bemoaning how often his attitudes and his actions are sinful. And I would submit to you, if the Apostle Paul looks into his heart and sees sin all over the place, as godly and holy as the Apostle Paul was, what chapter would you write to the Romans? What would you say about yourself if a godly man like Paul sees that, what would we say about ourselves? Would we say in verse 24, wretched man that I am. I've gotten a lot of Christmas cards so far this year already. Not a single one of them has said, wretched man that I am. Merry Christmas. 
We don't say it, and I think in large part, we don't believe it to be true. And this internal grieving by the apostle who wants so much to be holy, to be sanctified, to be like Jesus. So why did Paul hate his sin so much? Here's why. The reason he hates his sin is that he loves Christ so much. Might I dare say, the reason that we don't grieve over our sin, like we see him doing, the reason, actually it doesn't even hardly bother us sometimes, is because we don't want enough to be like Christ. We don't love him enough. We don't want to be like him enough. And so our sin doesn't bother us. And things in our character that aren't Christ-like don't bother us. And so we just sort of like, hey, I'm okay with this. You can measure how much you love Christ by how much you hate your sin. The more I want to be like Christ, the more I hate whatever doesn't look like him in my life. Now, I'm going to share with you my A number one best, like silver bullet. This is the best illustration of sanctification that I have. I'm going to tell it right now. But I'm going to tell it with the provision that you know I'm going to tell this same illustration multiple times in my series. Okay? And you're just going to choose to like it because that's what Christ-like people would do. So here's my best illustration of sanctification. The story goes, and I don't know if this is true or not, it kind of doesn't matter. But the story goes that, you know, centuries ago, during the Renaissance, in Italy, there was this town, and this town had happened to be the birthplace in the hometown of some famous sculpture. Don't know his name. Sculptor. Okay, a sculptor. I don't know his name, but uh, later in his career, he decided he wanted to give a gift back to his hometown. And so everybody knew about it, everybody's buzzing about it. Wow, we're going to get this sculpture, and it's going to be right downtown, maybe a fountain out of it, I don't know. But right downtown is going to be this, this beautiful uh, sculptor. And so one day, this massive uh, piece of marble shows up in the town square. Well, everybody's talking about it, you know, hewn out of the mountain from wherever. Here it comes. There it is. Everybody's jibber-jabbering about it. And, uh, and the sculptor, sculptor, it's hard to confuse these, sculpture and sculptor, the sculptor shows up, and they're like, hey, look what's here, the big piece of marble. And they said, what are you going to make out of it? He said, it's going to be a horse. Looked at each other and they looked at the massive block of marble and they said, How are you going to make a horse out of that block of marble? To which he replied, Easy, I'm going to chip away everything that doesn't look like a horse. Sanctification, my friends, begins with understanding that the God that dwells within you, the Holy Spirit, is the life sculptor, and we are the block of marble. And God's will is that we are made holy, that is to say, made like Christ. 
So if I could push the analogy a little bit further, if you want to know what justification is, justification is us, the block of marble, and God going, look, a horse. Are we a horse at that point? No, we're not a horse. We're a block of marble. And yet God goes, horse. And you're going to be a horse forever in eternal life. That's justification. What is sanctification? Sanctification is God in the practice and practicalities of life forming and shaping us into the horse, which in, theologically is into the likeness of Jesus Christ. He is chipping away at our loves. He is chipping away at our desires. He is chipping away and polishing our values, our attitudes, our actions, he is getting rid of everything in our life that doesn't look like Christ. Now let me push the analogy a little further even than this. As a Christian, the spiritual us is the horse inside who wants all this non-Jesus looking stuff chipped away. And Romans 7 is the Apostle Paul lamenting how much is still sticking on him that doesn't look like Christ. And he desperately wants to be like him. And so the question is, how bad do you want to be a horse? How bad do you want to be like Christ, Christian? Bad enough to dislike, even hate, what is in your life that isn't like Christ? And you see here, friends, I think the problem that many of us have is we don't hate enough. What did the pastor preach on today? He encouraged us to hate more. Exactly. Hate your sin with a passion. We don't hate what isn't like Christ, and we don't love enough what is. So I would dare say, I, I, I could not write Romans 7 in honesty. I don't know if you could either. Because I don't hate enough what isn't like Christ in my life. You know, one of the things about my little girls is they, are, they desperately want to grow up and be like mommy. My three-year-old Madeline, she, for some reason recently, she's, she says, I want to grow up and, uh, and, and make soup with mommy. Where do they come up with these things? Make soup. I don't know why soup. We hardly ever have soup, but she wants to make soup with mommy. The underlying principle is the more you admire somebody, the more you look up to them, the more you want to be like them. Might sanctification, friends, be a missing part of your awareness of what God is doing in your life? Again, many churches and ministries are really good at the beginning of the Christian life. Trust in Jesus, atoning blood, justification, all fantastic. But then what? What's God's will for my life? What's God wanting? What's he doing in my life? I don't know. I'm just going to heaven. And to see here in the teaching of Scripture that the gospel is faith in Jesus 
for sure. But it is also God saving us from our old selves in the practicalities of life, in a progressive growing into holiness. I think about the person who maybe has missed this, and maybe this is you, because you know how God oftentimes dunk off a big section of our character? Pain, problems, trials, if you were to interview the marble, hey, uh, the sculptor's about to uh, make a large cut. How do these feel, by the way? A piece of marble, you're like, it hurts. Well, then why, why, do you, why are you allowing him to do this? Because the finished product is so wonderful. The Bible says that God disciplines every son that he loves. Can you look at this last week? Think of the pinch points of this last week in your life. You had conflict with somebody. You had, you know, medical thing. You had, you know, prodigal child. You had, pick your thing. And we look at that thing and we think that thing is the only thing. Like this is, solving this is the only thing that matters. We pray that way, right? Take the pain away, you know, uh, take the person away, you know, whatever it is. And we miss the fact that in the larger picture, God actually has a purpose for that. And maybe it's in our life for the express reason that unless it's in our life, we will not be sanctified in that category. We won't become like Christ in that category. Oh, friends, how God uses these trials. We think that God, you know, he do, he's forgotten about me or he doesn't like me. When in fact, he loves you, and he loves Christ, and he wants to make us like him. And friends, listen, I, I'm no apostle, okay? I'm no apostle. I've been a Christian for a long time. And I look back on my life, and there are things that honestly embarrass me. I got regrets in my life. And the fact that I even get to stand up here and to do this is the grace of God and, frankly, the grace of this church that allows me to, to pastor here, which is an incredible privilege. But here's one thing that I will tell you in the course of my own life is that the older I get, uh, the longer I'm a Christian, the more I love Christ, the more I do. As many of you know, the beauty of Christ is something that has been so very meaningful to me. And I just say that because I am in Romans 7 myself. This is a sermon I totally can relate to. I wonder if Paul ever said, and you thought to himself, and you call yourself an apostle. You know, or in my case, oh, and you're a pastor. It's terrible and wonderful because the more I hate that stuff, the more it's a reflection of how much I love Christ and I want to be like him. And so these are the ways that God works in our life. 
and that little masterpiece appears. Christ-like qualities are formed. Pride is polished into humility. Self-service is sculpted towards agape love. The profane tongue is refined into speaking truth and building others up. Greed into giving. Hate into love. Why is all of this worth it? Like, you get, start to get to Romans 7 where he, and rather than, you know, he gets to the end and he goes, and therefore I now resign as apostle. I'm tired of all of this. Why is this worth it? Why is going through all of this worth it? I'll tell you why. Because Christ is worth it. Okay? This isn't about you, primarily. It's not about me. It is about the glory of Jesus and God's wonderful purpose in our life to shape and to form that in us. If we love him, we hate our sin. We hate everything that doesn't look like him. And I just wonder, is that you today? Because this is, what, this is maturity. This is growing in the Christian life. You're, just not on, you're not on hold waiting for heaven. God's working in your life right now. In the things of this week, the things of this day, indeed this moment, is possibly God polishing a little bit in your character, using the word of God to form and to stir up holy desires and to arouse love for Christ. We love him. And because we love him, we want to be like him. And because we want to be like him, we hate everything that isn't like him. Even as we wish it was. So I wonder if this past week had a little chiseling. You came in here with some like cracks. Broken off sections that you interpret to mean you're falling apart. No. You're a work in progress. You're a half-formed sculpture. There is Christ's likeness that is slowly being revealed in you. And I wonder if maybe you could delight at least in that part of the pain. Not in the thing itself. We don't delight in evil. But we sure can rejoice that God uses everything for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So delight in the shaping and delight in the polishing and delight in the goal because you delight in him. Last verse, wretched man that I am, who can save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therein lies our hope. All praise be to him. Sanctification. Amen. Amen.